0: Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have Dinosaur of the Day Lufengasaurus. We have an interview with Dr. Jordan Mallon. And we have a bunch of dinosaur news, as well as a dinosaur gift-giving guide. But first, as always, we would like to thank some of our Stegosaurus patrons. This week we would like to thank Kyle, Brendan, the Tolbert family, Sean Tanagaki, Remy Rodriguez, Marcy, and Rohan.
1: Yeah, thanks so much, everyone. We really appreciate everything you do. And we've been thinking a lot about that, especially now we're, you know, well, getting into the holiday season, or I guess we're in the middle of it now. (laughs) (laughs) And thinking about all of the people we've gotten to connect with over the past year and all of the amazing stuff that we've learned because of this podcast. So we really appreciate all that you do and all of our patrons. And if you want to join this growing group of amazing people, then check out our page at patreon.com slash
0: We have a new dinosaur to talk about this week. Uh Yeah. It comes from a study of Archaeopteryx finds, and it was written by Christian Foth and Oliver Rauhut, and it was published in BMC Evolutionary Biology. What the authors did is they looked at all 12 of the Archaeopteryx finds that have been discovered to date. And they reviewed them to see if the classification kind of held up between all 12 of them being the same species. Before all of these recent discoveries in China, Archaeopteryx was the only pre-Cretaceous paravian found so far, as they describe it. (laughs) Basically meaning in the Jurassic, the only thing we knew of that was sort of like a bird was Archaeopteryx. But now in China, we see this stuff all the time popping out of the ground. So... (laughs) What the researchers really found was that one specific individual known as the Harlem Archaeopteryx was different than the other ones. So this one was discovered in 1855 in Germany near the Dutch town Harlem, I think is how you say it. It's like Harlem in New York, except with two A's. I'm not sure what that does to the pronunciation, but it wasn't described until two years later in 1857. And then it was described as Pterodactylus crassipes by von Meyer, and the reason that they thought it was a pterodactyl basically even though it's a ta- pterodactylus, and pterodactyl is the wrong word but that's an aside <laughs> was because obviously it had wings and a lot of the things that you think of when you think of an archaeopteryx are like the toothed beak you couldn't see in the fossil because it's not a full body that's preserved It wasn't until 1970 that it was reclassified as Archaeopteryx by John Ostrom. And like I said, it wasn't nearly as complete as the holotype, but it was actually found earlier than the holotype. So it was kind of sitting around as a pterodactyl (laughs) while the Archaeopteryx was getting named. When you look really closely at this Harlem specimen, you can actually see feather impressions, which are a pretty good indicator that it's not a pterodactyl because they didn't have feathers. And there are vertebrae, gastralia, parts of the legs, arms, feet, and hands. But it's all kind of jumbled up. And when you just look at it at a glance, it just looks like two little bones with some other indeterminate claws <laughs> to the untrained eye. Not like the Archaeopteryx fossil that everyone's familiar with that is just obviously this bird-like creature in that lithographica, you know, awesome awesomeness. So... <laughs> What these authors did is they pointed out that it's more of an Anky Ornithid, meaning more like a bird-like dinosaur from China, than it is like an Archaeopteryx. So the authors named it Ostromia crassipes, and Ostromia comes after John Ostrom, who was the first to point out that it was a theropod and not, in fact, a pterodactylus.
1: Everything I hear about him is pretty great.
0: Yeah, he's a pretty cool dude, or was. <laughs> and then crassipes comes from that original name because if you move a species from one genus to another you're not allowed to change the species name unless you're making it invalid and synonymizing it so they had to stick with crassipes they didn't actually say where it came from and i couldn't find online the 1857 article <laughs> so i just had to guess at what crassipes comes from i think it's from crassus which means thick and pays or pez, which is foot in Latin, so it would be thick foot, I guess. And if you're wondering what it looked like, it's still quite a bit like an Archaeopteryx, but like I said, just a little bit more like some of these flying four-winged dinosaurs that we know in China. It's actually a little bit more like Anchiornis, and similar size too, so it's kind of in the ballpark of a crow, if you're trying to imagine it, but a crow with four wings and bigger claws. <laughs> And teeth. So maybe not that much like a crow, other than size.
1: Yeah. Maybe color.
0: Yeah. Next up, we're going to talk a little bit about Jurassic World. And spoiler alert, there is some new information coming out. And the trailer gave away some of the plot. We're going to talk a little bit in depth about the trailer. So if you don't want to know anything about the trailer or other Jurassic World news, just skip ahead a little bit so we don't ruin it.
1: And we'll get to that in a second. But there's also a couple other cool things. So there's a new Carlton Kids book coming out next May called Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, the official augmented reality book, hmm. which sounds pretty cool. I think they might have done one for Jurassic World, the first one. At least it sounds like it did. But we just I just didn't hear about it till now. So they've got descriptions of new dinosaurs we can expect in the movie. And the description of the book says, quote, Carlton's official augmented reality book is jam-packed with exclusive movie imagery and background facts and lets you experience original Jurassic World dinosaurs through mind-blowing next generation, fully interactive digital magic. Learn how to bond with and train Alpha Velociraptor Blue, then use her as your protector and guide as you encounter other dinosaurs through the app. From brand new movie dinosaur characters, including awesome Baryonyx and a terrifying new hybrid breed to old favorites like T-Rex and Stegosaurus, this Jurassic World AR book will wow readers all over again. So that's pretty cool. And apparently Baryonyx hasn't been in the films, but it's been part of the Jurassic Park and Jurassic World worlds. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Like
1: they had their own paddock on the map and... It was almost one of the main dinosaurs in Jurassic Park 3, but then replaced by Spinosaurus, which makes sense. In terms of the new hybrid dinosaur, too, there's people are speculating it's an Indoraptor, which we've talked about, and that's based on pictures of merchandise that's coming out. So... There were. It was a pretty exciting way to see the first trailer. There were all these teasers that came out every day before the trailer came out. And then we were hearing like it was first appearing in the middle of a football game on like Thursday night football or something. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. And then there was an announcement that that was actually inaccurate. So we were like, oh, no. Good thing we didn't report that though. But then it turned out to actually be real news after that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's going back and forth.
1: And now you can find the trailer on YouTube. And it's a really good trailer. It is. Like, really well done. A lot of action. It's a little bit different than what we were expecting, right? We were talking about it. It is about. very
0: different. Yeah.
1: Because we were thinking, well, what if the dinosaurs are pets? But it's more like how to save the dinosaurs.
0: Yeah, and it was the beginning started out of the trailer a lot like how Jurassic World, I guess, three started out where they were trying to convince people to go back to the island kind of thing. And it was actually maybe like two also pretty common.
1: Well, there's Ian Malcolm is back. <laughs> so that is like Jurassic World 2. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> or Jurassic Park 2. Yeah. Well, yeah. So apparently the character Claire has founded an organization called Dinosaur Protection Group, which I think think may have its own website now. And Bryce Dallas Howard, the actress who plays her, said in some interview somewhere that they're looking for a way to get the dinosaurs off of Isla Nubar.
0: Yeah. So I guess basically Claire ended up replacing the characters that were looking for their lost kid in Jurassic World 3. But now instead, she's trying to convince people to go to the island to save dinosaurs from an erupting volcano. Yeah. And that was totally different than what we expected. Although we knew there were hints about there potentially being a volcano in this movie. So I guess maybe we should have seen it coming. (laughs) (laughs) But most of the trailer is of them and dinosaurs kind of running from an exploding volcano. The early stages. Well, I don't know. I guess it's the early stages. Volcanic eruptions aren't that long, though. So...
1: No, but they're still able to run away, so.
0: Yeah, and then they show Chris Pratt getting engulfed in a basically pyroclastic flow, which would definitely kill him, but that probably won't end up happening in the movie. (laughs) And then (laughs) it seems like from watching that, that that would be the very end of the movie because it's like the volcano erupted, they all end up jumping off a cliff, and whatever dinosaurs were still on the island at that point would probably be dead. So I don't really know how that fits into the plot of trying to save them off the island. Maybe there's like a small section that doesn't get destroyed by the volcano. And so then they have to like get together the ragtag group that remains to try to like piece together a sort of like Apollo 13 style (laughs) rescue mission.
1: Yeah, you were saying maybe that happens in the beginning of the movie.
0: I hope so, because otherwise it's like you just know how the movie's going to end the whole time you're watching it.
1: because there's also been photos released of the museum with this giant skull. Hmm. And then there's another part of the trailer that shows Chris Pratt or Owen Grady, actually, Mm -hmm. uh, really up close to a T-Rex in a cage.
0: Oh, yeah. And then we saw that little clip of him petting. Oh, but that was a flashback to him, like, tickling Blue's chin. Oh,
1: yeah. There was was that six-second clip that came out of Owen Grady stroking the chin of a baby raptor, and that turns out that's Blue.
0: Yeah, because that was apparently the way that Claire convinces him to go back to the island is because he loves blue and blue is on the island.
1: (laughs) There was also a behind the scenes video that came out right before the trailer was released. And that shows that there's more dinosaurs than in previous movies. So that's good because I think I remember reading somewhere if you take the number of minutes, you actually see dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. It's like a surprisingly small amount of the movie. Hmm. (laughs) So this is good. Plus. We got a first look at Dr. Ian Malcolm's return. It looks like he's testifying about dinosaurs in court, but we don't hear him say too much yet.
0: I kind of interpreted it as he wanted to convince people not to go back to the island, but you took it the other way, which was that he was encouraging them to go back. It was a little bit unclear.
1: Yeah. I guess it would go with his character to tell people not to go.
0: Yeah, but he was basically just saying in response to like, Whether or not getting the dinosaurs off the island was a good idea that it's like, well, you know, they were here before us and therefore might be here after us (laughs) if we save them kind of thing.
1: Yeah. And there's, it also looks like there's a lot of stunt work in the movie, which isn't too surprising. Mm -hmm. They're showing parts where the actors are underwater and then they're in this like roller coaster like simulation type thing. And they also show that there's definitely a baryonyx and fire. Yeah, lots of stuff to look forward to
0: for sure. I'm a little disappointed that the plot wasn't everybody has dinosaur pets and then they turn on everyone though. I really like that idea.
1: (laughs) Well, this is going to be an ongoing series. You never know.
0: Yeah, maybe Jurassic World 3.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. And now that we are into mid-December, we thought we would do a holiday gift guide this year. Last year, we had a really great crossover with Brad Jost from the Jurassic Park podcast. And this year, we actually we got some recommendations from some of our listeners. And we also we kind of bought more stuff, I think.
0: <laughs> so we, yeah, that could be. <laughs>
1: I feel like we, we had more ideas of what to recommend. <laughs> so we have 10, give or take, ideas of dinosaur-themed gifts that we think would be great. We're looking at this through the eyes of if you're an adult dinosaur enthusiast, but a lot of these gifts also work well for kids.
0: Yeah, for sure. And apologies that it's a little bit late (laughs) because usually gift guides come out in like November. Oops. But some of these are available on Amazon and things like that so that you can get them quickly if you need to.
1: So the first one, thank you to Tim who sent this recommendation to us via email. It's called the Betsy Johnson... Betsy Sora's Rex purse on ThinkGeek. And it's a little less than seventy dollars. And it's a pretty good size purse. It's pretty cute. It's a green stegosaurus bag and it looks like there's a leaf kind of zipper thing.
0: It's got little tiny hearts for eyes.
1: Oh yeah, I didn't even notice that. <laughs> <laughs> it looks um there's a picture of a person holding it and it looks like you can fit a wallet and a cell phone, so good size purse.
0: Yeah. It's got a strap, too, so it's not one of those clutches that you have to carry all day. Yeah. Those are ridiculous. I'm not a fan.
1: I I know. (laughs) (laughs) I like in the description, it says, bag is not dangerous, no teeth or claws.
0: Mm. Yeah, its mouth is definitely closed, but it does have some pretty cool spikes, and then it zips up in between the spikes, too. Yeah. Yeah, pretty nice-looking little purse. I know most of the listeners are male, but if you have a significant other or female dinosaur enthusiast friend, this yeah. would be a good gift for them.
1: Or daughter, yeah.
0: Or if you are one of the female listeners, you could get it for yourself.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's a more affordable option than other ones I've seen out there. So let's yeah, definitely.
0: It's cheaper than that coach one we talked about. Mm-hmm. And it's also a lot bigger and more useful. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and next, of course, we have to mention the... the brontosaurus sweatshirt from stranger things that the science museum of minnesota is selling
0: yeah i'm guessing this sweatshirt is the most popular one because they're also selling a t-shirt of various formats and a hoodie but the one that they keep featuring in images is the sweatshirt
1: well that's the one that's in stranger things oh you're
0: right it is yeah yeah
1: it makes sense it's it's purple it's got that skeleton of brontosaurus and then it's a science museum in minnesota at the bottom
0: and thunder lizard in case you forget what brontosaurus means
1: yep plus (laughs) it's a cool name
0: (laughs) yeah and it's depicted in kind of an 80s posture with the tail near the ground and the neck having that droopy (laughs) swoop to it but it's pretty cool for sure if you're into stranger things or you know someone who is it would be a good gift
1: yeah it costs around 30 dollars
0: for the hoodie. For
1: the hood. Oh, no. For the sweatshirt is $30. The hoodie is 37
0: Oh, yeah. And then the they have a t-shirt that's 20 bucks, and they have kid t-shirt and toddler t-shirts that are a little cheaper, too.
1: Yeah. And the good thing about this is you can buy it online. So if you can't make it to Minnesota <laughs> yeah. to the gift shop, you can purchase it online and they'll ship it to you. I
0: don't even know if you could get it in the gift shop, too, because oh, it sounds be like out. it's really hard to get them there. So even if you're in Minnesota, probably just buy it online.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and next... These might be my favorite. This is something that we purchased earlier this year. They're these dinosaur lights that look kind of like origami, but, you know, they're plastic because they actually light up. And they made them in—we bought an orange T-Rex and a green Diplodocus one, but apparently there's also a pink Stegosaurus and a white Triceratops. (laughs) And They're actually—they're really cool. They'll give the room some nice ambiance— they're battery powered, so very portable. They're a, a decent size, you know, you can fit them in your hand.
0: They're basically like, what would that be for a dinosaur? Maybe 1 20th scale or thereabouts. <laughs> yeah. They're like maybe six inches long about. And well, I guess the sauropod would be a smaller scale because they're all similar size regardless of how big they are in real life.
1: Mm-hmm. And... So actually, these were a little bit hard to find because when we bought them earlier this year, they must have just been released and there were a bunch of stores that were selling them online. Now you kind of have to dig a little. I found one on called Iwantthose.com and also the Natural History Museum in the UK sells these in their online shop, which is nice. So you can kind of go through and, and not all of them. It looks like the Natural History Museum only sells the Diplodocus and the Triceratops. Yeah. So. Hmm.
0: So you got to hunt around you if you want the around. whole set. Yeah. We got the Diplodocus and the T-Rex for Sabrina's birthday party for some decorations. Yeah. <laughs> and they they really they call them lamps, but they're more like a night light. They're definitely well, like they're an bigger accent, than a night light. But... but they're just an yeah. accent light. Like you couldn't light up an end table with it or anything. So it's not the kind of thing where you're going to get a lot of light out of it. But they're definitely cool decoration.
1: True. And as a bonus thing, I just I noticed this in the Natural History Museum shop online. They have a Diplodocus egg cup and it's that same <laughs> green origami style like it looks exactly like the lamp except it's an egg cup so it's made out of porcelain.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. If I you, guess that's a British thing. It
1: is a Brit. If you don't know, I know this cuz my mom lived in Britain for a number of years and uh brought this to us when we were kids growing up. An egg cup, you'll if you have a hard-boiled egg, you put it in your cup and then you tap on it with your spoon and then you scoop out the egg from the shell
0: <laughs> yeah there's a interesting very british thing to do but the both the egg cup diplodocus and the lamp have their neck twisted like it was broken by a professional wrestler or something <laughs> it's pointed backwards but with the egg cup that's kind of funny because it looks like it's about to eat the egg yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> so Garrett, i might have to get that egg cup
0: when do we use egg cups?
1: We don't, but I would use that one.
0: <laughs> You'd start eating hard-boiled eggs just so you could get those? It'd be
1: just like my childhood, but with dinosaurs.
0: I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and next up, we've got the Steam Galaxy game called Go Extinct. And you might remember that we played this earlier this year, and we also interviewed the creator on the show. And it was a really fun game. So basically, it's like Go Fish.
1: But evolved.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Good one.
1: Well, it says on the site.
0: Oh, not a good one. <laughs> not for you, at least. <laughs> so, it features a cladogram as the board. So, it kind of teaches about evolution while you play it. And then you match different cards in the sets based on how they evolved. So, you get like a mammal group or you could get the dinosaur group, which is obviously the best group to collect. <laughs> and it's for sale on their website, I think also on Amazon for 20 bucks. So pretty cheap. And if you're looking for a game to play with your family around Christmas time, and if they don't understand your passion for dinosaurs or you want to increase their nerd cred a little bit (laughs) or your kids, then you should pick up this game for sure.
1: Yeah, we played it with our nephews who were uh, 10 and 5 at the time.
0: Yeah, the 5-year-old, it was a little bit advanced for him, but he could pretty much get through it with a couple helping suggestions the 10-year-old was all over it though mm-hmm. so i i think she had said in the interview that around 7 was the right age when people start to grasp it so if you know people over 7 who like board games this is a good choice
1: <laughs> yeah and we had a lot of fun doing it it's a good family game
0: yes a slightly more advanced game which i got for my birthday is called bone wars and we also talked about this on the show it's purely a card game there's no board that goes with it but Despite that, it's pretty complicated and complex and takes a lot of strategy, actually. Like I said, we talked about it already, but basically, you are assigned a famous paleontologist from the Bone Wars history, and then you get to try to build dinosaur exhibits from your finds, and you can basically lie about them, but then if you get caught, it penalizes you and you lose points, so it's a a big question of how much you want to gamble that, whether or not someone can call you out on your mistakes.
1: Yeah. And we played this with four players, all adults, so it says ages 10 and up. And that was a lot of fun. And I really enjoyed the quotes they had Yeah, <laughs> from what all the paleontologists said or wrote in newspapers.
0: Yeah, it was really well done. So if you're interested in a little bit more challenging of a game than a go fish style game this one's a good choice
1: yeah and this one costs around 20 so yep pretty good
0: up next we have the jurassic world soundtrack we didn't talk about it when it came out
1: we'll get you prepared for jurassic world fallen kingdom
0: yes and you can buy it on amazon either as a cd an mp3 or on vinyl in oh. case you want the vinyl edition it's 180 gram vinyl if that matters to you. And it's got a giant T-Rex footprint full of water on the cover with like a reflection of a person standing so that you can be terrified. (laughs) (laughs) So if you really like the music, the music in all the Jurassic Park movies is great. So I definitely recommend any of this stuff, especially if you liked the Jurassic World take on the original Jurassic Park kind of music.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did like how they made it their own.
0: Yeah, for sure. And then in that vein, if you didn't pick up Jurassic World on Blu-ray or DVD when it came out last year, it's gotten quite a bit cheaper. You can get it between 11 and $12 on Amazon and Walmart and all these places. And it has a lot of special features in it. We covered it way back when it came out, but they have <laughs> a segment called Welcome to Jurassic World where Colin Trevorrow and Steven Spielberg talk about the making of the movies. And they also have parts that show all the different stunts that were done and the different cgi as well as some deleted scenes and other cool behind the scenes footage in different little segments on the blu-ray so i think it's definitely worth picking up especially if you're a jurassic park fan unfortunately it doesn't have any commentary the only one of the series that has commentary is jurassic park 3 which is by far the least popular (laughs) jurassic park movie so it's kind of unfortunate but It's definitely worth picking up, especially if you want to kind of get in the mood before watching Fallen Kingdom next year. And you can get when you get the Blu-ray one, it comes with a digital copy and a DVD as well. So for 12 bucks, it's pretty comparable to buying just the film alone on streaming. And then you don't get any of the special features if you do it that way through one of the streaming services like Apple or, you know, the Amazon streaming. So I definitely recommend picking up the Blu-ray instead.
1: We're also recommending the Dinosauria poster by Pop Chart Lab, and we talked about it when they first released it. It took them five hundred hours of research and illustration, and they've got it was like one hundred hand drawn dinosaurs, and then all of the uh, taxonomy from the existing classification system, and they even incorporated what or Ornithischia, however you would like to pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's a really cool poster for sure. If you're looking for like an informative one-stop shop to all sorts of dinosaur information and cladistics, it's definitely a good choice.
1: Yeah, so it costs $37 on the website. Not bad. Um, And it would make a great addition to your wall.
0: Yeah, I also like the style that they chose. It's like a very old school parchmenty looking paper. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it's got a cool style to it. And I actually kind of appreciate there isn't a lot of detail in the illustrations, but that kind of represents what we know about them. Most of the detail that's put on these dinosaurs is speculative. So it's not necessarily a bad thing that they're not the most detailed drawings.
1: Yeah. And then we've got a couple books that we're recommending. So the first is the Sauropod Dinosaurs, Life in the Age of Giants by Mark Howitt and Matthew Waitle, and we interviewed them, you may remember, in a previous episode where we talked all about sauropods and their work on this book, and I personally think it's an amazing book, not only if you're into sauropods, but if you want to just learn a little bit more about dinosaurs, like the science behind everything, it's a really good introduction because it's not it's not dry like a textbook, there's a lot of really great illustrations, and they really break down the basic concepts for you.
0: Yeah. On their website, it says that it's 336 pages, 138 color photos, 200 color illustrations, 14 black and white illustrations, and 10 maps. Yeah. So there you go. That's pretty, (laughs) a lot of information.
1: I mean, at the very least, it's a very pretty coffee table book, but I would recommend reading it.
0: Yes. (laughs) As a free option too, there's also that Utah paleontology one, which is similar length and probably has almost as many pictures in it. So... If you just have a printer that's available, you could make a free dinosaur gift (laughs) or you could bind it or something. Of a different book, yes. Yeah, of that Jim Kirkland, excellent addition to all the geology going on in Utah.
1: Yeah. But if you want the sauropod dinosaur book, that one costs about $40.
0: It's definitely like a fancier book.
1: Well, it's hardcover, yeah. Plus it's sauropod, so you know. And our second book we're recommending is called Why Dinosaurs Matter by Kenneth Lacovera. And he's done some amazing work. Like he is behind the discovery and description of Dreadnoughtus, which is that huge, huge titanosaur that its name literally means fear nothing. <laughs> there's a really great picture. It's probably... Yeah,
0: like, it's probably Dreadnoughtus on the cover.
1: Oh, yeah. I was thinking there's a really great picture of him with, I think, like the femur or something that's longer than him or one of those... Huge sauropod bones that's bigger than a person. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Kenneth, this is part of TED Books. He did a TED Talk about why dinosaurs matter, which was really great. And it's talking about what we can learn from dinosaurs because they were such a successful group. They lasted for hundreds of millions of years, and like, what can we learn about them as humans and in our current current time?
0: Yeah. I think it would be a great book to give to someone who's like, why do you care so much about dinosaurs? You have this ridiculous obsession. You give them a book titled Why Dinosaurs Matter and they can find out exactly why you're so obsessed with dinosaurs. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. (laughs) And that would only cost you $17. So not bad. (laughs)
1: $17 answer. Yep. (laughs) Bit of a snarky answer, but still good.
0: And it's also probably just a very good book if it's anything like the TED Talk.
1: Yes. So we haven't read the book yet, but it is on my list and the TED Talk was excellent.
0: Yeah, it just came out. We wanted to have a more recent book because we know a lot of listeners buy up books quickly. So if you put something on there that's a couple years old, people are going to be like, yeah, I know I have it. (laughs) And last year, we also talked about this knockoff Lego dinosaur pack, which I checked and it's still available. So if there is a child in your life who wants some dinosaur Legos, most of them are super expensive and all they really want are the dinosaur figurines. (laughs) So like the Indominus Rex breakout, I think is $250 or something. And the main reason people want it is because it has this cool Indominus Rex, but you can just buy that separately for like $2. (laughs) So they have these packs that have different Lego figurines, I guess, knockoff Lego figurines on Amazon and eBay and stuff that you can get for about 10 bucks. And I'm about to make a video. It might not be posted by the time this episode comes out, or it might be. Showing how to put it together because I couldn't figure it out easily from the non existent instructions <laughs> that come with it. But it's definitely a cool gift. I got some for all my nephews and they love them. So I think it's a better choice than some of the Lego kits if they really just want the dinosaurs.
1: Yeah, they're pretty good looking dinosaurs. Yeah. Very close to how they appear in the movie. But I guess, in Lego form. But
0: yeah. Yeah. If your kid's picky, you could get two sets of them. And then if one of them doesn't work quite right, as happened with <laughs> one of our dinosaurs, then you just have a backup. But it's still a lot cheaper than buying the official product.
1: This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process.
0: jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio, and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
1: And now we have our interview with Dr. Jordan Mallon.
0: So we're joined this week by Dr. Jordan Mallon, who is a dinosaur specialist at the Canadian Museum of Nature. His research focuses on dinosaur ecology, as well as ceratopsians and their lifestyles, growth, and evolution. And at SVP this year, he had a poster about the riddle of upside-down ankylosaurs. So jumping right in, you named one of my favorite sounding dinosaurs ever just about a year ago, which I think is pronounced Spiclipius chipporum. Is that right?
2: Yeah, exactly. Spiclipius shipporum. That's what. That's how I say it anyways.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love that. What was finding that dinosaur and describing it like?
2: It was a great experience. I, I didn't personally find it. Uh, it was found by uh, a guy by the name of Bill Ship, hence the, the species uh, epithet oh, shipporum, right. <laughs> um, named after him and his family. So he, he has land uh, up in Montana, that he had bought, you know, uh, maybe uh, fifteen years ago or so, and uh, he had heard through talking to the local townspeople that that there were uh, dinosaurs found in the area. So he thought he, it might be fun to take a look on his land to see if he found if he could find anything on on his land. And you know, lo and behold, his first time out looking. <laughs> He finds a new species of horned dinosaur, but he had no, he was not in contact with any paleontologists as far as describing it. And he knew that in order for the dinosaur to get a proper scientific name, it'd be described in the scientific literature that it would have to end up in a museum. He couldn't just hoard this thing in his basement. Hmm. And so he does some work in the Ottawa area here. Uh, He's actually a a physicist by trade. Hmm. And so I I met him one day at the museum here and uh, we got involved and uh, the museum ended up purchasing the the specimen from him uh, one of the few times you're able to swing something like that. Yeah. And and so that's how I got involved in the in the project.
0: Awesome. And then how did you choose the name Spiclippius?
2: Uh well I you know it's it's probably the same way anyone would would pick a name. I I had nothing to do on a Saturday morning while I was waiting for my my kids to wake up, and uh, I was just coming up with a list of possible names and <laughs> seeing whether they would translate well into uh, you know Latin or Greek or, or what have you. And uh, Spiclipius just stood out to me. It, I, I thought it, Some people don't like it; they think it's a tongue twister. But <laughs> you know, I I usually say it takes about three times, and you can pick it up pretty pretty good. And it just means spike shield. Yeah, uh, in Latin. And, you know, there's enough Ceratopsians that uh, have uh, Ceratops at the end of the name. I mm-hmm. wanted something that would stand out a bit more. So uh, Spiclipius uh, won the contest.
0: I think it's great. I think it kind of sounds like a Dr. Seuss kind of character or something, the way it has that <laughs> sort of cadence to it.
2: Well, I initially wanted to call it uh, Bodacious Ceratops. <laughs> because uh, for various reasons, there, it, it, I think it's a great name. And uh, But I ran it by a number of folks here at the museum who, who did not like it. And I don't know that they necessarily like Spiclipius any better, <laughs> but uh, I did, and that's what matters.
0: <laughs> cool. <laughs> and then you also recently found another chasmosaurine. Well, this is just a chasmosaurus skull in Alberta, and you had to lift it out with a helicopter. How did that go? Uh,
2: it, it was sort of hit and miss. So this was a skull that I found uh, with my crew in 2015 it was sticking out you know the back end was sticking out of a hill and uh thought we had based on the bone texture i thought we knew what we had at the time but we knew we'd had to chase in after it just to confirm and as we kept going realized sure enough it's a it's a horned dinosaur skull
0: nice and,
2: and, and you know as these things usually go you find the best find at the end of the field season so <laughs> we couldn't finish digging it up that year so we came back in 2016 And spent a good part of that field season uh, digging the skull up and realizing, well, we've got a whole skull of one of these longhorned chasmosaurus, chasmosaurus canadensis, or or caesanide, depending on who you ask. But my site, it was found out on the Saskatchewan River in southeast uh, Alberta. And uh, it's a pretty remote area out there. There's, you know, zero access uh, to my site by way of, of roads or anything like that. And the skull weighs 1,600 pounds. Uh, the block that we collected it in so there's no way of hiking it up out of the badlands either it was just too steep too we i, I have a fairly small crew there weren't weren't enough of us so the helicopter was the only way to go which finally happened this year uh, i arranged to have a helicopter come out lr helicopters based in calgary and they donated the lift to us oh nice and, and, and it had to be canceled unfortunately i was trying to get it out uh back in august of this year but uh, the weather wasn't cooperating so we had two canceled lifts so we rearranged it to have it picked up uh, at the end of last month in september and uh, weather cooperated the lift went off without a hitch and uh, it's en route right now on the way back to the museum here in ottawa
0: great yeah i heard those those lifts can get really expensive because it's it's like they charge by the hour and it's what like a thousand dollars an hour or something like that.
2: Uh, yeah, if not more. Uh, I was quoted initially $7,500 for the lift. And uh, part of the problem is is that uh, the helicopter was coming from quite a ways away. It was coming yeah. from Calgary. Uh, my field site's actually closer to Medicine Hat in Alberta. Uh, but although there is a helicopter in Medicine Hat, it's uh, too small and doesn't have the right uh, rig to do the lift. Hmm. So the next closest place that had you know, the, the resources available, what I needed, uh, was in Calgary, and uh, so so yeah, it's quite a bit more when you're flying out from Calgary. But at the same time, I managed to do that flight with the pilot from Calgary to my site and back. so oh, cool! I was on the helicopter for all of maybe two and a half hours, which was was pretty cool. I've never been in one before.
0: Yeah, that's great.
2: Yeah, I, I, if I if I had my druthers, I'd I'd fly helicopter all the time now rather than taking a plane. <laughs> but it gets ex- expensive, as you say.
0: Yeah, cool. So. I want to go to ankylosaurs because ankylosaurs are my favorite type of dinosaur. And you had that poster that was really cool at SVP about how ankylosaurs seem to just always end up upside down or often end up upside down. And there were a few competing hypotheses for it. Can you talk a little bit about how you got into this from, you know, working on ceratopsians? How did you make this (laughs) transition into ankylosaurs?
2: well, I... I I wasn't necessarily interested in the ankylosaurs per se, although I, I do find them interesting too. Kind of what 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 I found interesting was the the taphonomic aspect of the project, which is how an animal becomes fossilized, effectively. Mm-hmm. Everything that happens after death on on the animal's way into the the geological record, and uh, so I'd done a you know a project a, a couple of years ago on pachycephalosaur domes and and how their preservation can inform us about where these animals were living. So this taphonomic aspect uh, has been a, an area of research that I've been interested in over the last uh, several years now, I guess. So reading the taphonomic literature, I was reading up on some work by. Uh, You know, a predecessor of mine here at the museum in Ottawa, uh, Charlie Sternberg. And Charlie had collected, you know, probably more ankylosaurs than just about anyone. And he noticed over the years that uh, as he was collecting these ankylosaurs, that by and large, they tended to be preserved upside down. And uh, he just said that, you know, he didn't provide any data to support himself, and that idea's been picked up, you know, in, in textbooks and whatnot ever since then. It's been circulated. Uh, but no one's actually ever tested that. They've kind of just taken his word at it. So <laughs> that was the first uh sort of aspect of this project, was trying to see whether or not that was true. So there's various ways we can do that. We can actually look at the field notes. Charlie was pretty good himself at recording the attitude of the specimens, you know, their orientation, whether they were right side up or upside down when he found them. Uh, we can look at original field photos as well to confirm for ourselves whether or not the specimen was found upside down. Or you can look at indicators on the fossils themselves. So I was looking at things like skulls and pelvises and tail clubs on, on these ankylosaurs to, to check their, their orientation in the field. And, you know, if you were to find... Records of sun bleaching and lichen growing on the top of the skull; <laughs> those lichens only grow out in the exposed air, so that would be an indication that the skull was, you know, right side up when it was found. Yeah. Otherwise, if you find those those indicators, uh, or or maybe weathering on the the bottom surface of the skull, then that would indicate that it's upside down. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I looked at as many specimens as I could that were collected from Alberta over the last. Hundred years or so, and I got a decent sample size. I can't remember; it was somewhere around the order of thirty or so. And you know, lo and behold, Charlie seems to have been right. These things are upside down more often <laughs> than not.
0: So, what of his, or I guess it wasn't his hypotheses, but what of the random speculations that people came up with for them ending up upside down? Do you think is the most likely?
2: So, there have been a number of ideas over the years as to why these things end up on their backs the way they do. Baron von Knopscha described the, the type of scolosaurus back in the early 1900s. And uh, that was a, an animal found on its back. It's displayed at the Natural History Museum in uh, London right now. And he suggested at the time that either the animal was very clumsy, so it may have tripped and you know fallen down a hill and, and ended on its back that way you know, but to argue, you know, that all of these ankylosaurs <laughs> were were clumsy, despite the fact that they've, you know, survived for X number of millions of years, kind of, you know, is, is a bit, well, it, it's a bit silly to think of. And it's also kind of a, a difficult idea to test. You yeah. know? How do you test that these are clumsy animals? <laughs> I, I don't really buy that. Uh, second of all, Von Knopsche also suggested at the time that uh, maybe they were being flipped over by by predators, by carnivores, because if you're going to eat an ankylosaur, you can't attack that back that's covered in armor, mm-hmm. you need to flip it over and attack that that soft underbelly, which makes sense. and you see that depicted, you know in the popular media all the time, yeah. ankylosaurs being flipped over and munched on by by uh, Tyrannosaurs or what have you. So that was a cool idea. And uh, we can test that idea by looking for evidence uh, on the bones of these animals. These carnivores should have been leaving tooth marks on the bones. We see that quite often, for example, in hadrosaurs. Hadrosaur bones have uh, tooth marks on them all the time, Mm -hmm. quite regularly. And it's for that reason that we think that hadrosaurs were sort of a main staple of of tyrannosaur. (laughs) Interestingly, though... We don't see tooth marks at all, uh, or at least very, very rarely, on on ankylosaur bones. And where we do see them, we don't see them on the upside down specimens. Oh, interesting. Um, preferentially, so you know, you'd expect if the upside down ones have tooth marks on them, then maybe it was the predators that were flipping them over. But that's just not the case at all. In fact, we see these tooth marks on ankylosaur bones extremely rarely. So I, I don't think that uh, the carnivores were Targeting the Ankylosaurus with any regularity. And it certainly doesn't account for why they're ending up on their backs the way they do. Interesting. There was another idea put forward uh, years ago by an ankylosaur researcher by the name of uh, Ken Carpenter. He suggested that what's happening, he, he likened uh, these ankylosaurs to armadillo roadkills. <laughs> so he argued that when you see armadillos, you know, dead at, on the side of the highway today via down in georgia or wherever what happens is they after they get killed by a car and and knocked to the side of the road they end up lying on their sides but as the the body decomposes and the gases build up with inside that body cavity those gases push the legs outwards they the legs kind of splay laterally hmm. and it's the legs that are touching the road nearest the road, as they splay laterally, they push against the road and end up rolling the animal over onto its back. Hmm. If you can you know what I'm I'm saying? I, I yeah. think I'm describing that well enough. Yeah. And 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 so he argued that the same thing's happening in these ankylosaurs, which is fair enough. Uh, it's a neat idea. Had a hard time figuring out how we'd test that one. <laughs> so I actually went out and sought a couple of armadillo researchers down in Georgia by the name of uh, Jim Loffrey and Colleen McDonough. And they actually spent a summer last year gathering data on armadillo road kills for me. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and they found that actually more often than not, no armadillos don't roll over onto their backs huh. the way the ankylosaurs do. They do on occasion and they could just as easily roll onto their stomachs from their backs hmm. And, you know, we did some additional taphonomic work, you know, putting these things in, in um, underneath basically plastic bins to keep the, the carnivores away to ensure that it's the decomposition that's rolling them over and not, you know, predator activity or, or, or scavenger activity. So we did our homework there and we did find that the armadillo roadkill analogy doesn't explain why these ankylosaurs end up on their backs. Yeah. So, so there's one final hypothesis out there, and it's been pr- pretty well accepted over the years, but nobody's actually gone to the uh, work of testing it. And that is the idea of this this bloat and float hypothesis. So, the idea is that these these animals would die by the riversides, and the body would eventually be flushed into uh, a nearby stream. And as that carcass would decompose, it would basically bloat and the, uh, the heavy armor on the back uh, would, would cause the animal to flip. So you've got the heavy armor you know, wanting to sink towards the bottom of the water and, and that light, gaseous stomach obviously wanting to float to the top. So it creates a very unstable configuration. Uh, and so the body basically uh, flips over and it floats down the stream and becomes preserved further downstream. So that's sort of the, the bloat and float idea. And we, we tested that uh with uh, Don Henderson at the uh Royal uh, Tyrrell Museum in Alberta. Cool. And Don's you know known for computer modeling uh, floating animals. He's floated <laughs> gators and ostriches I think and giraffes and certainly a number of dinosaurs. So I said, "Well, can you float an ankylosaur?" I'd like to see what happens if we bloat it up and uh, how it behaves in water. And sure enough, you know, it's quite an unstable configuration in water. Uh, and kylosaurs and are much more stable upside down than right side up when they're floating. Uh, so I think that kind of just confirms that idea. Mm-hmm. One more thing that's important to the story, the, the depositional environment. So where we see these upside down in kylosaurs, we, we only see that in North America, uh, where these animals are being preserved in fluvial channels, so at the bottom of riverbeds and whatnot. Hmm. They're preserved in basically uh, aquatic environments. But where we find ankylosaurs in terrestrial environments, in eolian deposits in places like the Gobi Desert, they are all right side up. So that hmm. suggests right there that water has a big part to play with the preservation of, of these uh, upside-down ankylosaurs here in North America.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think so. (laughs) So does that lend any like credence to the idea of ankylosaur swimming that so many of them are ending up in these environments or is that just a preservation bias that the ones that were in the water preserved and therefore they're the ones that get found and those are the ones that are upside down. So we find upside down ones.
2: Yeah, I I doubt these guys were swimmers. Uh, There's certainly nothing about their anatomy that suggests they were swimmers or even, you know doing much by way of wading like a hippo uh, we don't see there's there's nothing that would scream that they're doing anything like that and certainly we might expect to see more of them where we do in north america if they were swimming just because they would already be in those you know living in in those uh river habitats but and are, are pretty rare so I, I would think that they're not that uh you know inclined to to uh wading in the water Gotcha. We do find, you know, we do find a lot of uh, notosaurids in marine habitats, which is really interesting. They, maybe they were coastal animals, you know, uh, living along alongside the coast, and when they died, their bodies would eventually float out to sea. Hmm. But I, I, I'm not sure that I would describe them necessarily as, as you know, living, uh, you know, wading in the water the way a hippo would today.
0: Yeah, from like a layman's perspective. I would say an ankylosaur and a hippo look a little bit alike in that they're kind of lumbering and short and quadrupedal. But is it kind of the fact that their nasal opening is really low compared to a hippo? And what else would you look for to see that it might have been aquatic?
2: Well, certainly, you know, swimming animals have those, their, their digits, uh, their, their fingers and toes drawn out or elongated mm. and, and create flippers. And there's obviously nothing that we see like that in uh, ankylosaurs. Gotcha. You know, they're, they've got fairly inflexible tails that would probably not be of much use in swimming. Mm. Mind you, that's that's true of uh, hippos. They don't use their, their tails in swimming either. But it's just hard to envision the body being used uh, in water. You know, what would that club be used for if these things were were sitting in water all day? <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe they were using a, like a beaver or something like that. But, uh, there, there's just yeah, there's there's no obvious aquatic adaptations in these uh, ankylosaurs uh, to suggest that they're certainly living in the water, but living you know near the water, by the water uh, on, on these coastlines. I, I I certainly think there may be something to that.
0: Is there any just curious, I'm not sure if you know the answer to this or not, but is there any difference between an animal that lives near a coast and lives, say, you know, in the plains or in a forest that you could tell by anatomy?
2: Anatomically speaking, not that I know of. A really good way to get that, get at a question like that would be to look at uh, isotopes. Uh, and you can tell whether or not these animals are living or, or getting their, their water in fresh or, or, you know, brackish water or, mm. or marine water. Uh, you could tell that from the isotopes, but, uh, the anatomy, nothing springs to mind immediately.
0: Cool. Thanks for humoring yeah, me no with a random question. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's pretty much all the questions I have about your poster. Was there anything else interesting you found out that you want to share?
2: Uh, with, with respect to that project, no. Um, I'll, I'll say that the the project is still in the works, but uh, the paper's nearly done. I'm just waiting on some co-authors, and hopefully uh, it'll be ready for submission soon, so keep an eye out for that, maybe, probably in the new year. Great. But it's, uh, yeah, it, it's kind of funny, as you say. I've worked so far uh, quite a bit on, on horn dinosaurs. I sort of cut my teeth on those guys, mm-hmm. but... Uh, I've got a lot of ankylosaur research on the go right now, as it turns out. I'm almost becoming an expert on them, you could say. I've done some research. This latest project on the floating ankylosaurus, I've I've got a project in the works with uh, Victoria Arbor that's in press right now on uh, ankylosaurus. We're sort of revisiting the anatomy of ankylosaurus in light of recent research on ankylosaurus more generally and doing a a description of a, a giant. In fact, it is the world's biggest ankylosaurus skull in the collections here at the Canadian Museum of Nature. Ken Carpenter illustrated it. You know, back maybe 15 years ago, but uh, we're giving it a, a, a better description in this paper and noting s- some interesting you know features about Ankylosaurus that maybe weren't appreciated before that make it even more distinctive. Uh, it's it's a real you know, despite being the namesake of its of its suborder or whatever it is, Ankylosauria, mm-hmm. it's it's really not representative of that suborder. It's very distinctive and uh, it's it's a bit of an oddball. So looking forward to sharing that research soon awesome. and i've got a i've got a a student now working on ankylosaurs as well and i'm off to china next month to work on an ankylosaurus project <laughs> so, or an ankylosaur project i should say so lots of cool stuff coming down the pipe related to uh, the armored dinosaurs i'm sure you'll appreciate that
0: oh yeah <laughs> the more ankylosaurs, the better it's been a good year so far with Zool and borealopelta
2: yeah, yeah, I was lucky enough to, to see those things before they got described, especially uh, I did my PhD in, in Calgary, and so I was at the Tyrrell Museum all the time, mm-hmm. and uh, I got to see Borealopelta pelta prepared over the years, and every time you come back, you see a little bit more of the animal, and I mean, it really wasn't long before you could appreciate just what a cool fossil this would turn out to be.
0: Yeah, it's beautiful, I love that thing. I feel like yeah, we talk oh, about yeah. it every show, but I can never talk about it too much. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's almost like, um, I don't know, like seeing the Mona Lisa or something yeah. like that. You know, it, it really uh, takes your breath away. So we're pretty lucky, you know, and callosaurs aren't terribly common, mm-hmm. and yet some of the nicest uh Preserved dinosaurs we have are of ankylosaurs. You know, there's there's Borealopelta, and I'm thinking also of, of that skeleton of of Scolosaurus that I mentioned earlier. That's mm-hmm. in uh, the museum in um, in London. There, and there's all kinds of really good. Uh, th- th- I know the ROM has in Toronto has a good ankylosaur skeleton too. It's kind of disarticulated, but it's got the skin preserved as well. Oh, nice. So there's a number of really Beautiful uh, ankylosaurs out there, despite the fact, again, that they're quite rare. You know, compare that with something like a small theropod. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, those are also pretty rare as far as we can tell, but uh, they tend to just be, you know, scattered elements.
0: Yeah. Yeah. True. Cool. Anything other than ankylosaurs that you're working on?
2: I have branched off of ankylosaurs, kind of jumped off from them, I guess. Speaking of armored animals, and I've been doing a little bit of work lately on turtles too. Oh, cool! We've uh, we've got a big backlog of fossils collected, you know, over hundred years ago from the Sternbergs uh, <laughs> that we're still opening it up, and, and you know they still occasionally yield some neat surprises. So, uh, a couple of years ago, we opened up a turtle shell that belongs to a, a tortoise-like species called Basilemis. And uh, we've got a new species of Basilemys, uh, so I would argue uh, that's in press, right? Or at least it's in review, I should say, in the Journal of uh, Vertebrate Paleontology. So that's my first turtle paper, and uh, we'll see whether it, or not it's up to snuff shortly.
0: Yeah, I think that's partly the reason why occasionally people talk about ankylosaurs being aquatic, is because they kind of had a turtleishness to them. <laughs>
2: Uh, in a way, they certainly did. Yeah. And actually, one of the, you know, Basilemys is neat uh, as far as turtles are concerned, because it's got a very low shell. Mm. And in low shelled turtles, uh, the low shelled turtles tend to be the ones or the flat turtles basically tend to be the ones that swim in the water. Yeah. And yet, despite that, it's got these very elephantine feet, much like a tortoise, which we know mm. aren't aquatic and so there's this uh, sort of these conflicting characters that make interpretation of its paleoecology a bit problematic. Yeah. And, and as far as I'm concerned, very interesting. And so there's a project there. If Maybe I'll put out a pitch. You know, I've got some money for a master's student who would make a great master's project looking at the paleoecology of Basilemi. So if anyone's interested, drop me a line because uh, have I got a project for you.
0: Cool. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. That would be interesting to see. How? What era is that guy from?
2: Uh, it's living alongside the dinosaurs at the end of the age of the dinosaurs. So these are late Cretaceous dinosaurs or oh, okay. turtles rather. 75, 65 million years ago on that order.
0: So maybe since you're getting into turtle research, you can finally figure out how related to dinosaurs they are since that's been the biggest question for a while. <laughs>
2: yeah it's been interesting to watch over the years turtles have always been problematic as far as (laughs) pinning them down in the tree of life turtles and uh you know bats and uh even ichthyosaurs we never had you know great transitional fossils for but we're getting them now and uh we're able to tell much more easily these days where they fit in And, and of course you've got things like uh gene barcoding and whatnot, too, that, that that it's helping us to to sort these things out.
0: I can't even imagine a transitional turtle because you need the ribs to go outside the rest of the body, basically, which is just such a weird thing to have. It,
2: yeah, it's strange. And, and that's certainly not an area of my expertise. But, you know, two doors down from my office here, we've got Dr. Xiao Cheng Wu, who is. One of the co-authors describing Odontakeli out of China. Hmm. One of these er, very early, you know, turtley things that uh, kind of look halfway between a turtle and, uh, I don't know, a lizard, I guess. Oh, cool. A, non-tur- a non-turtle anyways. So, yeah, as I say, we're, we're getting these specimens now. And uh, I think the most recent, uh, they're, they're certainly a lot closer to dinosaurs and archosaurs anyways than we initially pinned them as. Uh, We just thought they were this aberrant group that had nothing to do with anything else, you know, alive today. And it turns out they're just highly derived, uh, probably archosaurs or stem archosaurs or something like that. Nice. Yeah, neat surprises.
0: Cool. Is there anything else you'd like to share or a place where people can go to find out more about your work?
2: Uh, Yeah, sure. I'm pretty active on Twitter. I I was tweeting from the helicopter there a few (laughs) weeks ago when I was doing the lift. Uh, live from the helicopter that was kind of (laughs) neat and uh, I'm at uh, Jordan underscore Malin on Twitter I try and tweet out you know uh, all the latest museum activities that we're doing here you can follow along and seeing what's going on in the prep lab and uh, you know seeing uh, what's going on as far as research is concerned as well.
0: Awesome well thank you so much for joining and I'll be sure to follow your progress on these new ankylosaur discoveries they sound really cool
2: Yeah, well, as I say, it'll be on Twitter, and as we prep our new uh, chasmosaurus skull that's coming in this week, too, uh, I'll be sure to post updates on that, too.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks again.
2: Uh, My pleasure, Garrett. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks again, Jordan, for the great interview. I'm sorry I missed it, but I know Garrett really enjoyed talking about ankylosaurus. (laughs) CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Lufengosaurus which was a request from Dinosaur 4602 via YouTube, so thanks. It was a massospondylid that lived in the Jurassic and what is now China at Shawan near Lufeng in Yunnan province, and the name means Lufeng Lizard. Bien Manian, a geologist, found the fossils in the late 1930s, and then paleontologist Yang Zhangjian, also known as C.C. Young, also known as the father of Chinese vertebrate paleontology, helped him in 1938. And Yang named Lufengosaurus Huanai in 1941. And the genera name obviously refers to Lufeng, and the species name is in honor of Yang's old tutor, Friedrich von Huhn. Yang's description, though, was hindered because this was during World War II, and he didn't have access to all the papers, and he wasn't able to fully compare this dinosaur with related dinosaurs. He ended up naming a second species between 1940 and 1941 and described it in 1947 as Lufengosaurus magnus, which means the large one. (laughs) And some have considered Lufengosaurus magnus to be a junior synonym of Lufengosaurus huonai. Generally, though, it's considered to have two valid species, Lufengosaurus huonai and Lufengosaurus magnus. Yang also named Gypposaurus sinensis in 1940, but then in 1976, Peter Galton suggested it was identical to Lefengosaurus. So the type species, Gypposaurus capensis, was already considered by many to be a synonym of Massospondylus. But then in 2004, Galton and Upchurch suggested that Gypposaurus sinensis was its own species. Michael Cooper suggested in 1981 that Lufengosaurus and Unanosaurus were species of massospondyls, but in 2005, Paul Barrett and others analyzed the skull of Lufengosaurus huanai and found that it was its own genus. Zhao Shijing named another species of Lufengosaurus, Lufengosaurus changduensis, based on fossils found in Tibet, but it's not described in its uh, nomum nudum. There's also Tawasaurus, which is a synonym of Lufengosaurus. About 30 specimens of Lufengasaurus have been found, and Lufengosaurus magnus was up to one-third longer than Lufengasaurus huonii. It was a small early sauropodomorph, about 20 feet or 6 meters long, although Gregory Paul estimated Lufengasaurus magnus to be 30 feet or 9 meters long and weigh 1.9 short tons. It had a long neck and short forelimbs, and was probably bipedal. It also had sharp claws and a large thumb claw, and its claws could have been used for defense or for getting food from trees. The skull is about 10 inches or 25 centimeters long, and it had a deep, broad snout, with bony bumps behind large nostrils and on the cheeks. It had a bony ridge on its upper jaw, and it probably had large cheeks, and it had closely spaced, serrated teeth. It was probably herbivorous, though it may have been omnivorous. And a lot of eggshells and lufungosaurus embryos were found in a bone bed in Yunnan in 2013. The bone bed was probably a collection of nests destroyed by flooding. There were about 200 bones found. In December of 2015, two lufungasaurus skeletons, one of each species, was found while workers in China were building a road, and there may be a museum built over the site to preserve the fossils in the future. Lufungasaurus grew rapidly, and it may have done that to kind of outgrow potential predators, and it lived at the same time and place as dilophosaurus. Lufungasaurus was the first complete dinosaur skeleton mounted in China in 1958, and there was a commemorative postage stamp also made. You can see Lufengosaurus in the Paleozoological Museum of China.
0: There's also a Lufengosaurus in the Hong Kong Science Museum that Sabrina and I got to see, which is really cool. Oh, yeah. And I think it's notable for being the only real dinosaur fossil, at least Lufengosaurus, that has been loaned to a museum outside of mainland China. And our fun fact of the day was created by Sabrina this week.
1: What? You're using that?
0: (laughs) Yeah. She made it a long time ago, but it seemed like a good time to use it. It comes from the book by Mark Hallett and Matt Waddle, which is all about sauropods that we covered in our gift guide.
1: So it's a sauropod fact.
0: Yes. And it's that sauropods may not have been that dumb, according to them and Sabrina.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they get a bad rep.
0: Basically, they argue that larger animals tend to have relatively smaller brains than related small animals, and that that doesn't necessarily correlate exactly to intelligence. Specifically, they cite going from a mouse to an elephant that the brain size doesn't increase as fast as the body size, but the elephants are still very intelligent animals. They can draw themselves in self-portraits with a paintbrush and do all sorts of other intelligent things. So it's hard to tell what exactly would happen with brain size if you extrapolate that another five to six times <laughs> of size. And we don't have any modern correlates either, so it's very speculative to wonder. On top of that, we don't know what kind of density of neurons the brains had, so it's a little bit hard to tell just how smart dinosaurs were And maybe sauropods weren't all that dumb. Maybe ankylosaurs weren't either. (laughs) Because they're always getting the short end of the intelligence stick, too.
1: True. I bet sauropods were smarter, though.
0: Than ankylosaurs? (laughs) I don't know about that. (laughs) I'll
1: go ahead and believe that.
0: Science isn't about belief. It's about facts.
1: Well, but we don't know for sure, so why can't my opinion be? (laughs) (laughs) I suppose. (laughs) At least for now. (laughs) And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks again for listening. I hope you got some good ideas if you're last minute shopping. <laughs> and if you want to join our growing community, please check out our page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again. And until next time. Good day.